0: This is essential. 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 This is essential audio. Welcome to the Money Pot, our podcast at Money 2020. I'm Sanjib Khalida, the editor in chief at Money 2020, and I'm here today with Rachel Morrissey, one of our content producers. Hey, Rachel, how are you doing?
1: Hey, Sanj. You know, with everything going on right now, I have no right to complain. We all talk about 2020. 2020- Being a difficult year, it's feeling like the perfect storm of multiple crises.
0: Yeah, it definitely does. And we need all the help we can to navigate through it.
1: Yeah. Uh, You know, we have all of these technological tools we can use, but I think we feel overwhelmed. We have a health crisis, a financial crisis, and a social crisis. And they're all related, but not exactly the same. Business models are being challenged from so many directions.
0: Yeah, and I've been thinking about how best to help the industry use their tools and resources. And I had to call Marsha Tall, who started Tall Solutions. She's been addressing the issues of how to organize your resources to best serve the customers for years. I've known Marsha for nearly 20 years when we both worked at City Cards. She was a trailblazer back then, and I'm happy to say that she still is. In fact, when she was at City, she created and built a global function called Decision Management
2: the decision management function was really put in place in order to apply um, new upcoming uh, analytic capabilities to business processes and policies in order to be able to optimize the decisions that we were making and to ensure that we were able to um, have the right controls in place, the business governance and processes in place, And obviously, to be able to expand our revenues and profits. So when we began decision management, it was really began in one line of business, which was U.S. credit cards. And when I left, decision management was already in 30 markets globally and was generating more than a billion dollars of annual profit.
1: So... This became a basic tenet of decision-making at city to better utilize data and analytics.
0: Yeah, and it was such a success that it expanded from just credit cards in the U.S. to all of Citi's retail businesses globally. Then Marshall realized she could help other organizations. So she left and started her own business called Tal Solutions.
2: I built the company really for two reasons. One was with all of the sets of experiences that I had, I wanted to be able to help clients develop the types of analytic leadership that's required to build robust and effective uh, analytic organizations, to develop the organizational cultures that are required to support analytic organizations and to build the predictive Uh, analytic capabilities that are required in order to support a growth strategy so that is what i wanted to do on one side of the business and on the other side of the business i wanted to develop my own platform with analytic tools and i did that in such a way where i could combine my technical expertise with my passion right? And my passion was really about and continues to be about it. It's not was, it is, right? Is about um, listening to customers and understanding that what our customers are telling us is not only important, but it's insightful and it's intelligence.
1: Okay, let's back up just a minute. She said so many things there. First, she mentioned developing analytical leadership. And then she spoke about organizational culture. What does she mean by those? Well,
0: let's look at what we are going through today. We have a public health crisis, an overlapping economic crisis, and a social crisis that are all affecting our industry and disrupting our business models. In order to hear the signal through the noise, we need to understand how to look at our data. Marcia starts with two organizing principles.
2: If you put all of that in the surround sound, so to speak, like the background, you know, how do we think about our focus on data analytics to be helpful as part of the solution set? And I think there's two ways to think about that. One is the use of data and analytics to be predictive and enable to drive decisions and maybe inform or change some of our priorities and strategies And there's also the human component of data and analytics, which basically means, do we have the right talent in place? Do we have the right leadership in place? Do we have the right skill sets? Do we have the right foundations and structure to be really kind of efficient and also effective in using our data and analytics, again, to help solve these very difficult challenges that we have? And I think that that interconnectedness both between all elements of this crisis, the elements of, you know, science and people, human and science, art and science. These are all multidisciplinary kind of areas that ultimately have to come together. And I think, you know, if if you think about where this is going, it's our ability to operate in within complex environments that are actually multidisciplinary,
1: where we need to bring all types of disciplines together. So how do you begin to access in this environment what you already have in place and what you need?
0: I think you begin with the questions that you really want to answer as an organization. Data analytics always starts with asking the right questions. I'd imagine that many in our audience are overwhelmed with the volume of data in their lives, in that environment, if you're not asking the right questions, the answers we get might not be helpful. So we need to understand if our questions need to change, and whether we are asking all the right questions. As we were talking, I asked Marsha for a really concrete example of how a question was incomplete.
2: In some ways, the questions can be different, but in some ways, the questions are actually still the same, right? When you're um, in financial services and when you are in the business of loans for example right it's really about how you can responsibly provide credit right in varying environments and make sure that you're supporting your customers needs and at the same time that you've stressed that environment to understand that you're operating within kind of the rules so to speak uh, mm-hmm. responsible credit lending. And so those questions were asked 20 years ago. And in fact, I um, did some interesting work back then, which was kind of questioned a new data source at that time, which was the credit bureau. Mm-hmm. And if I go back, actually, probably even more than 20 years, I thought, wow, we could really use the credit bureau in ways very differently than we are today. Right. At that time, we were using the credit bureaus really for the acquisition of new customers. We weren't thinking about all the information that was inside that could help support the existing needs of our our ongoing needs of our existing customers. And from all of the analysis that we did at that time um, using credit bureaus as an example, Right. What we were able to do was build all of these new programs that met the needs of our existing customers. And that turned out to be a really important element of our business.
0: So to say it a different way, credit bureau data was only used to see if a bank should open an account. We We used to call bureau data office data because it was primarily focused on history off of our accounts with the customer. That was the industry standard for all banks. After the account was opened and you progressed in life with things like new jobs, family, housing, and so on, your credit card account didn't grow with you. After the account was opened, they used data on the account or on us data and didn't look at off us because on us data was cleaner and more accurate than off us. In spite of these limitations, Marsha saw the opportunity to still use off us bureau data. To engage with customers, drive business growth, and make better decisions. That was pretty radical and remarkable back then, and is now the industry standard, which speaks to how well it worked.
1: That is pretty amazing. I get the sense that Marsha is constantly curious and coming up with new ideas. Uh, Another element of having an analytical culture is to actually look at and trust the data rather than relying on our gut instinct. Because frankly, a lot of our guts ain't so great. (laughs) Especially when you're in the middle of a crisis and emotions might cloud normally clear judgment.
0: Yep. Marsha talked about that as well.
1: So now if you fast forward, where are we today? And in
2: particular, what am I actually working on? It's almost as if, so what are these data sources that are there today that are untapped, right? Those that we can maybe kind of turn around, maybe turn on its head a little bit and think about, what can I learn? What can this data help me kind of provide now with the same question of how can I responsibly help my customers in this crisis, right? With so many people having so many challenges. And so one of the things that I'm working on is kind of this untapped data source, as I said earlier, about customer conversations. So, you know, customers uh, are speaking with us through different channels, and what they're telling us is important information. And that information mined in, uh, in a way that's looking to answer the questions of how I can solve some of these problems Right, is another opportunity. The same way that we used an untapped data source 20 something years ago, we can still be doing that today to try
1: and answer the questions that are, our, are the mainstream of our business. I really like that. Picking untapped data sources seems like low-hanging fruit on the analytics vine. But then that raises a bigger question about data philosophy. And I've talked to hundreds of people and companies throughout the years, and there are so many opinions about that. I mean, if data is the deciding factor then you need to have an amazing amount of confidence in the data. You need to be absolutely sure you're using the right data. And most importantly, you need to feel rock solid about how you're using data.
0: Spoken like a true data geek, Rachel. (laughs) (laughs) Before you start wax poetic about Gaussian distributions and standard deviations, (laughs) I asked Marsha this precise question about if she has a philosophy of data usage.
2: I think the first thing when we think about data usage, is we need to ask ourselves, what's the purpose of the usage of the data, right? What are we trying to achieve with this data? And are we thinking about it responsibly? Are we recognizing the level of responsibility we have when we're accessing our proprietary data, right, for the purpose of expanding our relationships with our customers, bringing on new customers... Um, increasing their engagement with our products and services, protecting them, um, thinking about our partners. All of these types of data sources are things that we bring together, but we need to make sure that the purpose of our data is ethical. And so I'm going to, people talk about the ethical use of data. It's not only about the ethical use of data. It's what is our purpose. And are we really, is the intentions that
1: we have, are those the right intentions? Ah, I see we meet my old friend ethics again. It's actually so refreshing to hear an industry leader like Marcia talking about ethics. It's such a loaded word. And like a glass of wine, you might call it half full Well, I might call it half empty.
0: <laughs> wine and data aren't usually a good pairing, but I think you made it work. <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to take that analogy a step further, many of the best wines distill the essence of the entire grape, the weather it was grown in, the dirt from which it drew nutrients or, or terroir. Marcia talked about the quality of data and what is actually required as well.
2: When you start, I said earlier that you start with a set of questions Equally so, when you start with data, it's the same thing. What's the ethical use of the data? What do we need? Do we really need any PII in that data? Maybe not, most probably not. We're not looking for um, that individual attribution when we're looking kind of to do the work in data and analytics. So we should make sure that our data sources are scrubbed and that our data is clean and accurate and that that's the data that we the best data that we have on the journey of trying to solve the problems that we need to solve. And we need to ensure that the problem is well understood and articulated so that the data sources that we're choosing are matching kind of the problem that we're trying to solve.
0: And like a world-class wine producing region, data analytics needs many positive factors to overlap to create the right conditions to flourish, which she talked about as well.
2: So first I'd ask you to visualize, for example, a Venn diagram with four circles, right? They're overlapping circles. So one circle will say data, one will say analytics, one will say technology, and one will say people. All four of these together, right? And especially where they overlap, that's the secret sauce, right? Because you need, as I was talking about earlier, examples of understanding what data sources you have, how they can be explored. Um, Is there scale? Is, Is there an opportunity to scale using this data? Analytics, you need to think, do I have the right analytic packages? Do I have the right tools? Do I, you know, how does the organization think about in these days, open source as an example, right? When you think about technology, do I have the right technology? Do I have the right environment in a sandbox that's going to allow me to experiment? I need to experiment in, you know, when you have Unprecedented degrees of uncertainty. You need to test, you need to experiment, you need to build new capabilities. Does my organization support that? How does my organization feel about make versus buy when speed matters, right? How are we going to get to the solutions that we need when we're in a crisis?
0: So, Marsha just explained the first three circles in the Venn diagram, but I think the last one is the most important.
2: So, that's kind of like a bit of those other three circles. Now we talk about talent right? Do we have the talent? Do we have the mindset? Do we have the leadership? Do we have the patience really, right? To support the organization and develop a culture of learning of innovation and analytic rigor. These things come together. So what, how do you do that? The first thing you have to do is think about who are your leaders, right? And what type of experience do they have? Oftentimes, people think that their leaders need to be experts in all aspects of the analytic kind of discipline, but in fact, I don't believe so. I think you need to understand all of the um, potential that the analytic discipline can provide. But you can rely on and should always rely on and surround yourself with all the experts that you need in order to be able to make the decisions that leaders need to make. So number one, do you have the right leadership? Number two, do you have the right organizational design and structure, right? That's almost your foundation. And when you think about the design and structure, oftentimes you have to think about, well, what is the work that we do, right? Let's define the work
1: in a way that our people understand this is what we do. Wow, that makes a lot of sense. It also seems like getting these four circles on the Venn diagram to overlap, you're driving accurate decisions for business and optimizing the right metrics. Going back to the wine analogy, is this the inappropriate time to break out the champagne?
0: (laughs) Not quite yet. (laughs) To get to that point, you need to have a data analytics environment that is built for the long term. Marsha talked about this and how things come together.
2: And this is how our work comes together. And this is really not only what we do, but the skills we need to do that work. And by the way, if this is the work we do and these are the skills we need, then how do I, inside of this organization, fit in? What's my career path? Where's my mobility coming from? How do I progress? Because one of the things that I've learned over the years Is that people that are working in this discipline they love it right oftentimes earlier like you know earlier in my career a lot of people felt they had to leave the analytic discipline in order for their career to progress and they went to let's just say more generalist types of roles today i think the organization is kind of looking for these leaders right and they want to develop this type of career progression so that's really the opportunity. Do we have not only the talent development, the leader development, and the clarity of definition of what is the work and how do I fit in? I think those are some things that I would think about.
0: I saw this firsthand when I worked at Citi. During my first week there, I put together pro forma financials for a new business opportunity and presented them to the business leadership I worked for Bill Borden, who is now Corporate Vice President of Worldwide Financial Services at Microsoft, and Peter who who is running a multi-billion dollar business at Citi at the time and has gone on to lead several other financial businesses. When I presented my pro forma to Peter, he made a comment that really struck with me. He said, I think we'll learn a lot with this initiative. The fact that he focused on learning, not just the financials, was pretty groundbreaking for me. Especially at a financial company. <laughs> yeah. I, I I mentioned this to Marcia as well.
2: Thanks for reminding me of Peter and Bill, good friends and great people and great professionals. And um I think that, you know, it's interesting. Learning has a cost to it. Right? So even learning you know, there's a structure around it. We call it sometimes test and learn. We call it test, you know, experimentation. And the reason why I say it has a cost to it, it's an opportunity cost because you will be kind of trying out new ideas and testing things that are in place of in some sampled environment, right? In place of something that's kind of tried and true, But you have to learn or else you become a stagnant organization and actually you become irrelevant to your customers and you lose any competitive edge that you have. But you also need to understand that when you're learning and when you're testing, that there's a structure, there's an expense associated with it, and there are outcomes that you expect and measured successes that you're looking for. So what are the KPIs, right? What are the metrics That are going to come out of this learning that's going to help me build the business or reduce my losses. or doing something that's going to impact kind of the ongoing um, optimization of the business. So I think it's a combination of recognizing learning has structure to it. It's important to adhere to that structure, recognize there's an opportunity cost, but also recognize that you need to define what those expected outcomes are, put them into some type of metrics so that then when you go forth and want to kind of replace what you're doing with things that you've learned, you have you know real data and metrics to support why it
1: is you're changing. You know, I love that statement, learning has a cost. And I think it pairs well with the perfect can be the enemy of good. In this time when we can barely look before we leap, it's important to think of mistakes and mishaps as opportunities to learn. If you think about data as both a guide to continual change and then the cost associated with mistakes can be considered as valuable. But that all comes down to resilience and leadership. And as Marcia said earlier, leadership that understands the potential that analytic discipline can provide.
0: Yeah, leadership that embraced those ideals grounded the entire team, which is incredibly important. Marcia spoke about how she decided to better utilize the data set of the credit bureaus. But she also wants to get the data that hasn't been collected or collated.
1: Yeah. Yeah the data directly from the customer calls. In their stories, there is a tremendous amount of data. The researcher, Brene Brown, she calls stories data with a soul.
0: And, and Marsha wants to get that data by really listening to customers. She believes that customers are directing the questions and giving you the answers. But there is no amount of manpower that can achieve that. So she is relying on AI to help.
2: And I said, I want to be able to listen to millions of calls. But I personally can't do that. Let's have the technology do that. And let's have the technology uncover what's inside of them in ways that can complement our business knowledge, right? And then utilize that in order to be able to resolve issues or identify kind of opportunities that we never knew about. And it's interesting now, even within our COVID-19 environment, We've done a lot of work in listening and, um, let's say, unraveling those kind of customer conversations and complaints that are rooted in issues related to COVID versus those that are not. And there's a total difference, right, in both the topic of the conversation, the reason for the call, and ultimately how we should be thinking about the resolution.
1: Okay. But how good is AI at really listening? And this also comes back to ethics. Can we trust AI to be unbiased? And what will the biases mean in the data?
0: AI might be better at listening than actual humans. But that isn't the right question. It is about the intersection between human intelligence and AI. And as for bias, AI can actually be used to guard against bias.
2: So I've been asked this question quite a lot recently with the release of my bias index, right? Because um, we use AI... In uh, in the bias index, and it's interesting because oftentimes AI is you know is being described as having biases itself. So we have to think about AI and its use, kind of both in ethical ways, but also in a way that is kind of bringing um, the intersection again of our technology and our human insights together, so that we can uncover right, different types of opportunities that are hidden inside of our data. And so I think that, you know, when I think of positivity tech, for example, I think about the platform as a way that we could really provide different types of early warnings. We could highlight different types of keywords. We could uncover triggers. All of these things are kind of, you know, um, good use cases for AI, Right, but on the backdrop of all of this, we need to make sure that we're not bringing our bias into those models. And the way we do that actually is by using data that is actually, um, you know, unbiased. It's just raw, right? It's the conversations. And if you determine those conversations to be truth or not, the truth is it's what people are telling you, right? So the, you know, it, it's, it's a great setup to um, be able to ultimately predict bias from that. But we use AI in such a way
1: that we're solving multiple problems. So this seems like a much less scary version of AI than Elon Musk is warning us about.
0: <laughs> it, it definitely is. And, and the bottom line is that we have to use AI to properly organize and utilize the vast amounts of data that we have. And to be ethical, we have to stay true to purpose, which is where human insight has to stay a part of the dynamic.
1: So if you want to know a lot more about Marsha Tall and the positivity tech approach, you should check out her session at MoneyFest on October 29th as part of our global networking platform and afterwards on demand. And she is going to directly address how AI is going to be integral to ethical use of data in the coming years.
0: That's it for this episode of The Money Pot. We want to thank Marsha Tal for her time and amazing work. We also want to thank our fearless producer, Roland Bodenham.
1: And if you have any suggestions for an episode, please write us at podcast at money2020.com. And thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and tell all your friends it's the new must listen.
0: This is essential. Essential. essential essential Essential.
2: This is essential audio.